That's it for announcements. We're in Exodus tonight, Exodus 30 and 31. We'll be looking at the tabernacles. We're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights. Also, uh, if you haven't been over to children's ministry in a while, tonight's kind of a fun night to go. It's box car night. So they build cars out of boxes and watch a movie. It's a classic drive-in movie down there at the sum- summit room. So you can go see their, their work this evening in the children's ministry. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to study your word, to look at your tabernacle and so much detail as you instructed them on how to build it. May we see more of you, Jesus, and how you fulfill the tabernacle to dwell among us. Whatever we're going through and the joys and the sorrows, may we sense the reality of your presence. We do thank you for the work that you did this past weekend, give you glory for that. And for all of those that responded to you, we just pray that you would bless them this evening and encourage them in their walk with you. So give us ears to hear and hearts to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember the children of Israel are going through the wilderness, traveling to the promised land, and God puts everything on pause and says, I want to give you laws and I want to give you instruction for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's presence amongst God's people. God wanted to dwell amongst his people, wanted to place his presence in the very center of their camp. But what gets really interesting is in John chapter one, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally the same word tabernacle, the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. So God's always desired to dwell among his people. And the fulfillment of the tabernacle is Jesus. Jesus is with us. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's tabernacled among us. So as we go through this tonight, we're going to see how the tabernacle, it points to Jesus. Also how the tabernacle mirrors the throne room of God. That is seen in the book of Hebrews that when we get to heaven and we see the throne room of God, there's going to be these same instruments, these same articles that are written in the book of Exodus, for the earthly tabernacle. So I hope that you're encouraged tonight as we travel through these two chapters together. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, a cubit its width. It shall be square, and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So the altar of incense is to be one cubit by one cubit, which is 18 inches by 18 inches. So this is relatively small, the altar of incense that was to be burning before the Lord, representing prayer and worship that's going before the Lord. So we have this description of the altar of incense, and you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make it for molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides. And they shall be with holders for the poles which, with which to bear it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat, that is before the testimony where I will meet with you. 
So this altar of incense was to be in front of the veil before the priest would go through the veil to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Verse 7, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends its lamps, he shall burn incense on it. So on this altar of incense, there would be this burning that would be going up before the Lord continually. Incense does represent prayer. In Revelation chapter 8, I'll read this to you. We get this amazing picture of incense being altered before the Lord, representing the prayers of believers. It says, Then the other angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes. So the prayers of believers represented in the incense, when it comes before the throne room of God, then God responds by sending this storm down upon the earth. That's an example of how powerful prayer is. In Psalms 141, verse 2, you may want to write this down. This is Psalms 141, verse 2. It says, let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So incense is supposed to smell good. I'm not a big incense guy, so I don't know, really. Kind of missed the whole hippie stage. That was before my time. But in theory, it's supposed to smell good, right? And so the idea is this altar of incense representing prayer is our prayers, our sweet smell, sweet aroma before the Lord. Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of the altar of incense. And you're saying, how so? Because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Remember Peter? And Peter is struggling and he denied the Lord. What did Jesus say to Peter when he rose from the dead? He said, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. The reason that Peter was able to see that to the other side wasn't because of Peter's greatness, but because Jesus was praying for him. Isn't it comforting to know that Christ is praying for us tonight? that he's ever lifting this incense before the Lord for our areas of weakness, our struggle, even areas of rebellion in our lives. And so Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of this, but this does stir us to pray as well, as to say, I want my life, my prayers, to be an incense before the Lord that's continually going before him. In verse 8, And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. So Aaron was to continually having this incense going. When Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, so in the morning and in the evening, he was keeping this altar of incense going. It was to go on perpetually throughout all generations symbolizing that our prayer before the Lord should never stop. We should pray without ceasing, to take some time in the morning. Isn't there a freshness about the morning? As you wake up and you begin your day, to be able to cry out to the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. And then as we're ending our day, thanking him for his faithfulness. 
thanking him that he's got us through another day to end our day in prayer, begin our day in prayer, end our, our day in prayer. This is continual fragrance going before the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Did you catch that? God's always leading us in triumph, and everywhere we go, we should have the fragrance of Christ. Now let's pause for a second. Aren't smells powerful? There's good smells and there are bad smells. I won't go into the bad smells. I'll let your imagination go there. But the good smells, coffee, oh, what a sweet fragrance. So good, right? Sometimes I think when I'm over here, working here at the church, I can just smell the fragrance of Smashburger coming across the street. I think it's possible. I, th- I think it's Smashburger that, that I'm smelling. And our lives to be a fragrance of Christ that everywhere we go, people are like, there's something different about you. You have the fragrance of Christ. You've got the the incense of Christ. So this altar of incense, Jesus has fulfilled it. He's the ultimate prayer warrior. It encourages us in prayer and encourages us that, that our lives would just have the fragrance of Jesus, that Jesus would be able to diffuse himself with that fragrance everywhere that we go. Verse 10, and Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year, he shall make atonement upon it through your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The day of atonement, one day of year, sacrifice for the sins of Israel. And what was to be marked on the day of atonement were the horns. Blood was to be placed upon the horns. The altar of incense being set apart for the Lord. So we kind of go back and forth here a little bit between different articles in the tabernacle and different instructions that God is giving. And now we see this ransom that was to be paid. Verse 11, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel from their number, then every male shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them that they may that there may be no plague among them when you number them. When it was time to do a census, to count the children of Israel, then every male was required to pay money to the Lord, to pay ransom money to the Lord. And this is described in detail for us. This is what everyone among you, those who are numbered shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 jihaz. Then half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give them an offering to the Lord. So once you were 20 years old, you had to pay this. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an altering to the Lord to make atonement for yourself. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint for the service of the tabernacle meeting. So all the money would go to help running the tabernacle. That it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So why in the world would the Lord do this? Most offerings throughout the Bible, Old Testament included, are voluntary. 
It's what God puts upon your heart in worship to the Lord. But this was mandatory. Every male, when the census was come, would have to give this money, ransom money, in a sense to buy his life back. I think God is laying a foundation here of the importance that we need redemption. We need redemption. I wonder if at times when they were giving the money, this ransom money, that they would go, this really isn't enough. (laughs) You know, I've really committed a lot of sin and I'm marred. And how could me paying this little bit of money redeem me back from, from God? First Peter writes, and he says that money can't ransom us before the Lord. You can't buy your salvation from God. It's not like God's going, hey, if you got a hundred bucks, then I'll give you forgiveness. Or if you've got a billion bucks, okay, then, then you can have forgiveness. No amount of money can buy our redemption. For us to be redeemed, we need the blood of Jesus Christ. So I think God is laying that foundation and showing us the need for Christ to pay the price for us. We can't pay the price, but Christ can pay the price for us. Also, I think God is showing us here that our life doesn't belong to us. Our life doesn't belong to us. These men could have been saying, what, why do I gotta give you money, God? And God's like, well, wait a second, I created you. I've sustained you, I've given you breath. And this was a reminder that their life doesn't belong to them, that their life belongs to to the Lord. So points to ultimately Christ being the ransom for our sins. So then we go back to this article, another article inside of the tabernacle. It's the bronze altar. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting and when they come to the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. They shall wash with water lest they die. They shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants throughout their generation. So the priests... Before they go in to serve, they had to wash in this bronze laver, this bronze wash basin, their hands and their feet. And God was so committed to this that if they skipped and they said, I'm not washing my hands today, God's like, bzz, gong, you're dead, right? You're, You're no more. Before they could serve, they had to wash. And we need that in our lives as well. When we think about serving the Lord, when we think about having impact for him, for his kingdom, God first needs to wash us. The priests needed their hands and their feet washed in this this water. Again, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Isn't it Christ who is the one who washes us? He washes us with his blood. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from all of our sins. He washes us in the water of the word. In Ephesians 5, instructing husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and to wash our wives in the water of the word, just as Christ does the church. So Christ is is washing us, the church, in his word. He'll cleanse us through his sacrifice, and he cleanses us through the word. And we do need to take time to be cleansed 
before we serve. Some we get so focused on service, so focused on God using us that we forget to spend time at the feet of Jesus for him to wash us, for him to cleanse us. Have you ever read the Gospels and seen yourself as the person who's in need? When you read about the leper and Jesus cleanses the leper, that you realize, I'm the leper. Sometimes we read the Gospels and we go, oh, isn't it so wonderful that Jesus loves this outcast? That Jesus loves this one who couldn't cure himself. And we fail to see, I'm the leper. I'm the leper. I'm rotting away with sin. I need Christ to wash me. And just as this leper needed to be healed, I need my sin to to be dealt with. When you look at Jesus allowing the little children to come to him, and the disciples saying, hey, why don't you get your snot-nosed kids out of here? Jesus doesn't have time for kids. He doesn't like kids. Jesus, with a big smile, says, let the little children come to me. Do you read that and you go, oh man, that's so sweet. God has a heart for toddlers. Or do you read that and you go, man, I'm the child. I'm the child. I'm the one who is in need of Christ and trusting Christ. When you see the woman who's caught in adultery and brought before Christ, do you see yourself in that story? You go, man, I'm caught in sin. I'm busted in sin. I deserve judgment. But Jesus has declared to me, go your way and sin no more. It's difficult oftentimes to let the Lord wash us. Isn't it a humbling thing to have someone else wash you, right? That's not a comforting thought to think about being in such a place of need where where someone has to help you bathe. Many times we go to the Lord and we go, no, don't wash me. Wasn't that Peter's argument? Don't wash my feet. I'll wash your feet. And it takes a certain level of humility to go, God, I need you to wash me. I'm coming to your brass laver, your brass, brass wash basin, and I need you to wash me. If you're struggling with sin tonight, guess what? You're in the right place. You're drawing near to the Lord. If there's bitterness in your heart that you can't seem to get rid of, you're in the right place. If you've been walking through this world and dealing with the difficulties of this world, and you go, man, I just feel overwhelmed and dirty from all of the things that I got exposed to today just in my work day, man, you're in the right place. Let the Lord wash you. As we take communion tonight, let him wash you in his sacrifice. As we read the word, let the Lord wash you. That's what's so good about the word of God and the spirit of God is coming just able to renew our minds and, and wash our souls. But it takes humility for us, for us to realize we need to be washed by the Lord. In verse 22, the holy anointing oil. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet smelling cinnamon, 200 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, 50 shekels of kesa, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make for these a holy anointing oil, anointment compound, according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. 
Imagine as popular as oils have become today. If someone got their hands on this and they could start selling it. Help me out. What are some of the popular brands? I forget. Young Living, and then there's another one. doTERRA. Imagine if Young Living and doTERRA got their hands on this stuff. I mean, this is, this is pretty good stuff right here. Verse 26. You guys just know I'm having fun, right? Is it, is it okay to have fun in church? Only on the weekends? Verse 26. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all of its essentials, the lampstands and its utensils, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them, and they shall be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy, and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. And it shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it, nor shall Young Living or doTERRA sell it. According to its composition, it is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Moreover, compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from the people." So you're cut off from the children of Israel if you break this command about the holy anointing oil. Why do you think God is saying this has to be set apart for the priests and everything inside of the tabernacle? Because he wanted worship in the tabernacle to be sacred, to be special. Can you picture, here you are in the wilderness with the children of Israel traveling from place to place, journeying and camping. But in the midst of the congregation is the tabernacle. When you would come close to the tabernacle, you would see it. Remember a few weeks ago when we studied all the elaborate ways that the tabernacle was made with all the beautiful designs and everything that was woven? It would be the most spectacular thing that your eyes would see in the camp of Israel, but also your smell would be overwhelmed, your sense of smell. You'd be smelling the altar of incense. You'd be smelling this anointing oil that's on the priest and on every article. And you'd realize, oh, there's, there's something special. I'm entering into the presence of God. Many times our, our homes have a beautiful smell that we get used to. We walk home from a long work day and we see our families Maybe you see your family dog that's there to greet you and then there's some smells when you walk into the kitchen and your body's like, oh, I'm home. Like, it just feels so good. I'm home. It's been a, been a long day. And there'd be that sense of, oh, I'm coming into the Lord's presence. We've tried to mimic this a little bit without breaking this command. And that's why we have the coffee shop right at the front of the church, the well. So when you walk in, you get that smell and you're like, oh, it's time to fellowship. It's time to be in the Bible. It's time to be in worship. Just joking, but I do like that smell. I really do like that smell. I've mentioned that already in this service, haven't I? What about the anointing oil? What's the significance to it? We see in the Old Testament that they anointed priests, they anointed prophets, and they anointed kings. Jesus is referred to as the anointed one. The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. 
He's the fulfillment of this as he was anointed to be the savior of our sins. Also, anointing points to the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we see the church being filled with the Spirit of God. What makes our lives really set apart and to have the fragrance of Jesus is the filling of the Holy Spirit, is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as we depend upon the Holy Spirit, it's not just a one-time filling, but a continuation of going back to the Holy Spirit. Would you fill me afresh? Would you empty me of myself and fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit? Jesus said that we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our kids. But how much more so does he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's ready to give the Holy Spirit. He's ready to pour out the Spirit upon our lives, anoint us with the Spirit if we're willing to ask. We go on into verse 34. And the Lord said, take sweet spices, starch and anka, and galbum and pure fragrance with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. So in this incense would be salt as well. And Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Verse 36, and you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. God wanted the tabernacle to have its own distinct smell. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by my name Bazil, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. As we go into chapter 31, verse 3, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God and all wisdom and in understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. So God gives this one man, Bazil, wisdom from the Lord to be able to build the tabernacle. And he has the spirit of God with him in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship so that he can do the physical work to build the tabernacle. And we get a list of everything that he's going to design and everything that he's going to build. To design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting of jewels for setting and carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So gold and silver and bronze and jewels and wood to be able to make this tabernacle a reality. And I indeed, I have appointed with him Ahoyalib, the son of Ahashmash, the tribe of Dan, and I've put wisdom in the hearts of all of the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all of the furniture of the tabernacle, and the table and its utensils, the pure gold, the lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, with all of its utensils, and the laver in its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron 
the priest the garments of his sons to minister as priests. Remember, we saw how detailed the garments of the priests were. And anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. I think this is a really important lesson for us tonight. And that is that there is no difference between sacred and secular. And you're saying, what do you mean? That makes no sense. There's no difference between sacred and secular. Let me explain. And this is what I mean. When it comes to the gifts that we've received from the Lord, a lot of times people may be gifted with their hands to build things, to figure things out, and they go, how could that ever be used for the Lord? That's a secular gift that's used to build buildings or you know, finances, but how would that ever be used to to glorify the Lord? But we see with these guys that in order for the tabernacle to become a reality, God had given gifts to artists who then had the Spirit of God inside of them using their artistic gifts for the Lord. Every gift is from the Lord. So if you're a mechanic, God's given you that ability and wants to use that for his glory. If you're an artist and you're really good at painting, God wants to fill you with his spirit and use that for his his glory. If you're good at music, God wants to use that gift for him. But we tend to think, well, there's only spiritual gifts and then there's secular gifts. And I think God kind of left me out on the spiritual gifts. And he just gave me this secular gift And I want to try to dispel that idea in your mind and say all gifts are from the Lord and he wants to use that for his his glory. Isn't it an amazing thing that when we come out of the womb, we come out with strengths and weaknesses? There's things that come naturally to us and we're able to figure certain things out, but yet there's other things that are really difficult for us. So where did you get those strengths? God engineered you that way. Could you imagine these guys growing up and they're really good with their hands and they're artistic and maybe they have a heart for the Lord and they're wondering, how in the world is God going to ever use me? Then God lays on Moses the plan to build the tabernacle and they get called out by name and they're the ones that are in charge of all of this and God gives them the wisdom to be able to do it. So wherever your gifts lie, if it's in finance, if it's in architecture, if it's in art, if it, whatever it is, to say, okay, Lord, fill me with your spirit, fill me with wisdom, help me to do this with absolute excellence so that you are glorified. Wouldn't it be amazing if Christians applied themselves in the area of art through the power of God? God is the ultimate creator, giving Christians creativity and doing art to the glory of God And people who didn't know the Lord are like, wow, Christians are really good at art. What's going on here? But I almost feel like sometimes Christians feel like, well, well, I'm a Christian, so so, so for me to serve God, it's got to be in these traditional areas, but you're really gifted at art. So use your art to glorify the Lord. Does that make sense? So this is a really good example of saying all gifts have been given by the Lord and all gifts are to be used by the Lord for 
for his glory. The Sabbath, in verse 12, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it's a sign between me and you throughout generations that you may know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, please keep in mind that we know from the New Testament that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath is the seventh day to be a day of rest. And Jesus said the Sabbath was a shadow of the substance that was in Christ. So we're not held to the Sabbath in this religious sense that we're required to rest the seventh day. However, I think that we've gone too far and we don't ever rest. We've used our liberty as a license to say, well, I'll just work all the time. I'll go, 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 seven days a week. I'm never gonna, gonna rest. And rest is important. So the ultimate rest is found in Jesus. The practical way that we enjoy rest in the Lord is to stop working. I think it's healthy for us to take one day a week. It, it doesn't have to be Saturday could be any day of the week, but be consistent with it to say, I'm going to stop work and I'm going to rest and I'm going to trust the Lord. And notice what's said here about the Sabbath. It says, my Sabbath, it it belongs to the Lord. You shall keep him for the nation of Israel. It was going to be a sign that they belong to the Lord because everybody else doesn't rest, right? All of these pagan nations around Israel, when they come into the promised land, they're not resting. They're working seven days a week, and they're like, what's up with the Israelites? Why are they resting one day a week? That, that's ludicrous, and it was to be a testimony to their relationship with God. The rest that we enjoy practically and the rest in our souls that we enjoy personally because Jesus is our Savior, should be a testimony to an unbeliever. We should not be working seven days a week like an unbeliever. We should be in a place of saying, I can work six days a week and trust that God's going to meet my needs, that he's going to provide for my needs. Rest really comes down to faith and believing that God doesn't need me to work seven days a week, that God is my provider. I know this is a newsflash for all of us, but the world is going to be just fine if we rest one day a week. Like your job is going to be fine without you, right? Rocky Mountain Calvary is going to be just fine without me if I rest one day a week. We're really not as important as we think we are. But we tell ourselves, I can't afford to not work. Like this place is going to fall apart without me if I, if I don't work, right? Or I'm not going to meet my bills if, if I don't work seven days a week. And so that rest is that dependence upon the Lord. And it says that I'm the Lord who sanctifies you. So somehow in rest, God sanctifies us. Sanctification is to be made more like God. And one of the ways that God sanctifies us is actually through rest. We're most spiritual healthy when we rest. How many times... Does God show us something when we stop working, right? When we get off that treadmill of work and we're like, I'm just going to chill out a little bit and take a nap. And in the midst of taking a nap, you wake up and there's an epiphany from the Lord. There's an understanding from the Lord. We, we enjoy him and enjoy relationships. And 
God's able to do that sanctifying work. And that's humbling, that it takes rest in order for God to to sanctify me. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day is the Sabbath for rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, he shall surely be put to death. Sounds like God's really serious about rest. He's like, if you don't rest, then you're going to be put to death. Remember a few weeks back, we studied the Ten Commandments, and one of the Ten Commandments was the Sabbath day. Well, that's one we're really good at breaking. Right? Adultery? No. Covetousness? No. Murder? Too much jail time. But working seven days a week? Well, I have to. Yeah, I, I can't rest. I can't take time to enjoy the Lord and the people that he's put into my life, but God's really serious about rest. So when we know the character and nature of God, why would God be so serious about rest? Because he loves us. Because he wants what's best for us. He wants abundant life for us. As a parent, are there certain rules that you're really serious about? You're like, you know, these down here, I might let you slide on. But this right here, I'm going to hold to it because I really love you. And I really know what's going to happen if you cross over this line. And I think God knows how much we need rest. In verse 16, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. So the nation of Israel continually remembering the Sabbath. It shall be a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he was rested and was refreshed. What? God rested? Yeah, he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. So if God chose to rest and was refreshed by rest, how much more so do I need rest? Now, did God need rest? Is he weary or wore out? No, he didn't. He didn't need to rest. But by choosing to rest, it says that God was refreshed. He looked around at his creation. He goes, oh, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good, right? So if you're struggling with, well, should I rest or should I not rest? Wrestle with the fact that God rested on the seventh day. Setting that example for us. And when he had made an end of speaking... With him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony of the tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So God on two tablets writes the Ten Commandments and these Ten Commandments are written with the finger of God engraved on stone. Now stay tuned next week for chapter 32 because when Moses comes to deliver the law engraved with the finger of God, it's already been broken. They're worshiping a golden calf. The law could never save us. The law points us to our need for Christ. I want to read a few other verses to you that talk about God's desire to not write upon stones, but to write upon our hearts. 
This is Ezekiel 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments to do them. The promise of the new covenant. When God softens our hearts and writes on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us the analogy of the law and the work of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. It says, But if the ministry of death, speaking of the ministry of the law, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For in the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. So the law was glorious, but it brought about death. On the day that it was given, the law, 3,000 people died. At Pentecost... When the Holy Spirit was given, 3,000 people got saved. So the Spirit of God in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus can do far more than the law could ever do. So we don't have this rules-based relationship with God, but what we have is the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins upon the cross, his death and resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and the Spirit of God leads us, convicts us. We quench the Holy Spirit, and if we allow it to, the Holy Spirit will lead us in righteousness in a far greater way than the law ever could because the Spirit of God is much more powerful than rules. So it's not that God doesn't intend for holiness, but how we get there is completely different. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus and through the leading of the Holy Spirit. If you will open up your life to the leading of the Spirit, you'll be blown away. To walk in the Spirit of God, say, Holy Spirit, will you lead me? Will you convict me? Will you guide me? Will you empower me? We'll find the Spirit of God to be faithful to lead us, to write upon our hearts in a way that rules and regulations never could. I bet these stones looked great. These engraved stones, I bet they looked killer. No doubt they'd be in the Smithsonian today if we still had them. I mean, the finger of God writing on these engraved stones. And Moses is ready to bring down the Ten Commandments. And he's like, I've got God's handwriting. Oh, too bad you guys already broke most of all these commandments, Right? So God's showing us we need more than laws engraved on the stone. We need a Savior who died on the cross for us, who the Spirit of God writes upon our hearts. So how do we see the tabernacle pointing to Jesus? The altar of incense points to Jesus, whoever makes intercession for us. The bronze altar, Jesus is the one who washes us in his blood and in the water of the word. The Sabbath, he ultimately is our Sabbath rest. Are there people that don't know the Lord that are really good at resting? I'm sure there are. But they're missing out if they don't know that Jesus is their rest. So enjoy Jesus as your rest and then practically take one day off a week 
to plug into him. And the engraved stones wasn't enough. We need him to write upon our hearts. Let's stand together and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you left the glory of heaven to tabernacle among us, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are praying for us in our area of weakness and our struggle and sin. Thank you that you wash us. We pray that even as we take communion tonight that you would wash us, that you would cleanse us. Thank you that it's your blood that makes us righteous before you. Would you wash us in your word? We thank you that you are our rest. That the work is finished. That you've paid the price. And we enjoy you, Jesus, as our rest tonight. And also, would you show us how to rest practically as well? We see that laws being engraved on stones wasn't enough. And God, would you engrave your will, your word, your law upon our hearts and empower us through the Holy Spirit to be able to live it out. So Lord, would you meet us afresh in the communion table tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.